Hello and welcome to the second of two special ICAW Insight In Focus podcasts, exploring the role boards can play in solving difficult dilemmas where there is no clear right answer. I'm Peter Van Veen, Director of Corporate Governance and Stewardship at the Institute, and I have with me a great panel to explore a fictional scenario that will bring a dilemma to life. I have Sandy Pepper, Emeritus Professor of Management Practice at the London School of Economics and Political Science, Janet Williamson, Senior Policy Officer for Corporate Governance and Capital Markets at Trades Union Congress, and Leo Martin, Director and Co-Founder at Goot Corporation Limited. Welcome. Hi, Peter. Thank Hi, you. Peter. So last time we looked at staffing challenges in an organization that is growing fast. Today we're exploring issues around staff retention and well-being in a cost of living crisis in our fictitious food and drink manufacturer, Zingers. So let's start with some news. One of the region's biggest employers, the food and drink manufacturer Zingers, is rumoured to be looking at a merger with one of its rivals. Zingers, which has a turnover of more than £500 million, employs 700 people across three sites in mainly manual jobs. The company is widely seen as too small to take on the major international players and investors have been calling for some sort of strategic alliance. The company wouldn't comment, but the union that represents the majority of workers says Zingers has always been a vital source of first jobs for school leavers in the region, and any deal needed to make sure that didn't change. Shares in the company rose 2% yesterday. And it turns out that those merger plans are quite well advanced. Here's a board update from the CFO. As discussed at July's board meeting, the executive team feels now is the right time to explore M&A opportunities. Becoming more of an international presence is the obvious next move for the company and can only happen if we join forces with a complementary rival. At the same time, the next few years are clearly going to be a challenge for everyone, with the economic circumstances meaning we can expect lower demand, significant input price inflation and higher interest rates. Joining forces with someone of a similar size to us will both increase our purchasing power and create opportunities for cost saving, making us stronger precisely at a time when our rivals are likely to be getting weaker. We've spent the last two months selecting and hiring financial and legal advisers and have now drawn up a shortlist of three potential targets. We're in a strong position to start approaching them and as long as we maintain our current focus within the business, we are confident of success. This is going to be a crucial time for the business and we need to be putting our best foot forward both internally and publicly. But putting their best foot forward may not be possible when it comes to employee churn. Let's have a listen to an email from the HR director to the chief executive outlining this problem. John, I said when we spoke briefly yesterday that I was becoming increasingly concerned about our staff turnover levels and I thought I should put the basics down on paper. As you know, we've always been a significant hire of school leavers into our traineeship programme and there has traditionally been a dropout rate of about 10%. Some of this is due to a lack of suitability, but a bigger part has always been our trainees finding higher paid jobs elsewhere. In the last six months, as labour markets have tightened and other employers locally have been able to offer better salaries than us, that dropout rate has more than doubled. At the same time, we're losing more experienced colleagues at a faster rate for the same reason. I should point out that this issue is by no means confined to us. 
As a sector that has always been characterised by low margins and low wages, we're particularly vulnerable to labour market pressure, especially at a time when the cost of living crisis is making life hard for a lot of our people. I'm afraid I don't have any easy answers to this. Whatever we do, it will need the support of the union. I've already talked to our reps about the potential for flexibility in our employment terms and possible changes to the traineeship contract, but for understandable reasons, their prime concern is protecting and enhancing current pay and conditions. But there's another issue. This time involving how staff are behaving at and after work. This is a memo from the warehouse manager to the production director. Bill, I wanted to draw your attention to a recent increase in the amount of stock going missing from the warehouse. While pilfering has always been a minor problem for us, we've always been able to manage it. But the problem has been getting worse in the last few months, and I think it is related to a new phenomenon I've noticed. Since the weather turned cold at the beginning of the month, significant numbers of staff have stayed behind at the end of their shift and spent time, sometimes hours, in the staff break rooms. I think people are saving money by not going home and turning their heating and lighting on. The cost of living crisis is impacting everybody, but particularly our more junior and lower paid workers, and I am reluctant to ask them to leave at the end of their shift given why they are staying. The increased level of pilfering from the warehouse is a different matter, and something I need your advice on. So, I think I'm going to start asking you, Sandy, about the strategy this company has to, to merge and move a step up in things. Given the current situation, given all the other contexts, how wise a strategy is that in the current economic climate? Well, it sounds as if it's a survival strategy. Um, this is a company uh, that is kind of somewhere in the middle, and that's not a comfortable place to be. And by all accounts, facing a few difficulties. Uh, and in those circumstances, um, a merger with another company in a similar s kind of situation might well be key to the company's long-term survival. And Janet, clearly there are some challenges here. I mean, it's a significant employer in the region. It's training lots of young people crucial skills. This is a recipe for, for, for a real problem for the local area if, if, if this churn continues, certainly. I think the company needs to look at its whole kind of workforce management or HR strategy um, in the round because it doesn't seem to be working very well. Clearly the company does play a really vital role recruiting school leavers and, and training them but you know large numbers are leaving and people are leaving uh, higher up the company as well. But it seems to me very clear that the company needs to find a way of increasing pay for its staff. Um, you know, perhaps particularly the lower paid staff, and it needs to do more, I think, to help its, its, its workforce kind of cope with the cost of living crisis. I think raising pay has to be part of that mix, but there's probably other things it can do as well in terms of sort of advice, um, you know, perhaps put getting, it's a, a food company, perhaps there's more it can do in terms of giving staff some free food. At the moment, it's kind of wasting money, recruiting people, training people who then leave. So some of that money would be recouped by, you know, better remuneration and management practices. Um, and maybe they also need to look at other sources of 
increasing pay, you know, perhaps some redistribution from top to bottom, you know, are the directors getting bonuses which could be redistrib redistributed um, elsewhere. They were obviously already talking to the union, they need to go back, I think, to the union and have more discussions, deeper discussions, including putting on the table what is happening, you know, the, the pilfering, people staying late, you know, engage with the union about what, what do they think uh, they should do to address those problems and of course the union will then be talking to the, work, the workers as well. And Leo, I, I guess pilfering is never, never good if stock goes missing in this pilfering. And, and it, could this lead to more significant type of structural, ethical, cultural issues in the organisation if it's, if it's left unchecked? I think absolutely. So obviously what you see is where you have one sort of ethics thing go wrong um, and theft of stock is obviously an ethics type issue. Um, of course, um, it can lead to other types of behaviours or it's given a sort of soft signal to people that other types of misbehaviour are acceptable or will be tolerated or we won't be able to crack down on them. But we have to look at it in the round, as Janet was saying. You've obviously got to think about well, why, why is the, what, is, what is being pilfered. And if it is basic food items, then we've got to think about the cost of living crisis and what people are actually stealing and why and think about wages and working hours and so on and try and look at it in the round. But obviously from a sort of ethics point of view, you're trying to think about trying to establish a culture where people are encouraged and empowered to, to do the right thing. Um, and you don't want to encourage a culture where pilfering is part of the culture because you know, any sort of petty theft can lead to a sort of change in, in attitudes towards more serious wrongdoing. But there's clearly a, a real challenge, right? Because Janet, you mentioned raising pay and, 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 and that, that could also mean raising prices of the goods that you're selling, which may be in the cost of living situation quite hard to do if it's, if it's essential food items that people are struggling to afford already. Um, on the other hand, there is clearly also a labor shortage. And clearly these staff have got other jobs they can go to that are paying a better, one assumes, a better salary. So how, so how do you get out of this? This, this circular dichotomy where you don't want to raise prices to the end consumer because it's a cost of living crisis. On the other hand, you're losing staff. Um, so you have to do something. And I think if they have a really honest and open conversation with staff about the challenges that they're facing and um, also are very open to the challenges that their staff are facing, you know, they might be able to you know, come up with some uh, ways of doing things that will actually save money and be more efficient for the company. I think also if the company um, is basically showing kind of understanding towards the fact that the staff clearly do need a wage rise, that will also kind of improve morale and motivation and you know the, the turnover at least ought to sort of reduce to some extent. It does an awful lot of good to ask people what they think, what they think can be done better. Um, it's often lots of very good ideas come up and they may be halfway there then to you know bridging the gap and uh, that you know, would hopefully not have to all go on to higher prices. And, and are there any non-financial ways to, to make a, a place a more attractive place to work? Uh, Leo, maybe you've got some thoughts on that. Of course there are. But I think also you find in, this, in, in Zingers, perhaps, you've got a, a cultural challenge to try and you've got lots of young people who are coming through and, and dropping out of your training. And that would make me think, OK, there's something not quite right because it's quite legitimate to say, in that sort of environment, we've got a great opportunity here to get young people and help them to get their first set of skills and get onto the next bit of the career ladder, which might not be at Zingers, but let's get that culture of we, we can help you to develop some skills and, 
and perhaps move on to something better within Zingers or somewhere else, and trying to create a culture where people have that sense of opportunity and progression, maybe starting off with very basic, um, low-skilled people or people sort of, um, who are coming out of maybe leaving school at 18 or whatever, um, and trying to help them use Zingers as a, as a sort of starting point can create a culture, I think, that might be a place where you can actually tell people they can stay there longer, and if they don't, that's fine, they're going to get skills to, to move on, and that might be a good part of retention. The fact people drop out of a training course sounds like a worry in itself. That's the first place I would be looking here. I mean, um, it, it, a training scheme where people leave part of the way through is clearly not a very effective training scheme, and there's, there's ways of uh, accrediting training, training schemes um, that, that can be relatively cheap to implement but can uh, add hugely to the value that the, 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 uh, the, the employee gets out of it. So that's definitely a good place to start. I would say a lot of um, school leavers training schemes, you know, apprenticeships and so on, a lot of them are incredibly badly paid. Um, and, and, and low pay is quite a big reason for people dropping out. So yes, we don't, you know, obviously it needs to be looked into um, and so on and so forth. But, you know, people, it may be the quality of the training scheme, but it also may be that people can't afford to stay on the training I, scheme. Yeah, I do, I do recognise that. I mean, I think, that, you know, this is a classic dilemma, isn't it, is the trade-off between keeping costs down um, and uh, paying people an appropriate wage. And I personally do think the company needs to think about what its position is uh, there. You know, there's a very legitimate argument, a business ethics argument, that says everyone has the right to um, an income that is sufficient to lead a dignified life. And the company has to decide whether that's part of its, whether that's part of its policy or whether it's going to kind of leave that responsibility to government and society as a whole and solely look at the, the kind of the hard economics of it. And also working hours are part of that, that story as well, which we haven't touched on. So zero hours contracts, maybe Zingers doesn't, doesn't, isn't in that world, like the sort of retail world, but trying to make sure that people are actually able to get a guaranteed amount of work and so they know what their wage is going to be so they can actually sort of plan and plan their budgets and so on, I think is really important and not leaving people in a precarious position where they don't know uh, what they're going to be earning um, and maybe, but maybe that's obvious. And I think there's also lots of other bits of culture that you can think about, which the training bit speaks to, about trying to think about non-financial reward for people and trying to create an environment that's, that people sort of run to on a Monday morning <laughs> rather than, oh no, another day at work. And, and, you know, and there's obviously loads of stuff out there about good uh, non-financial reward for people. I mean, and, and the training bit may be, in this environment, a particularly important part of that. C can we just talk about the acquisition thing here, though? Because, um, you know, pay in mergers and acquisitions is one of the most um, uh, sort of um, sensitive issue, I, I, I think. Um, you know, when you bring two organisations together, if they have different pay profiles, different pay systems, that can create all sorts of tensions um, within the organisation and can also have quite significant cost implications. So I would have thought um, if they're serious about um, some kind of a merger here, the HR um, uh, leader for the company ought to be exploring with possible partners how they deal with these sorts of issues and see whether anybody's got any good ideas that might, uh, might help uh, the, the situation. But you would certainly want to <coughs> benchmark pay. You would certainly want to get a picture of are you paying less than the average in the industry? And certainly the union should help 
be able to give some perspective whether they believe that you're underpaying staff or not. Isn't, isn't that, I, I assume? Um, yeah, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they can. But I mean, there are also some sectors where pay is simply it's too just, low yeah. um, across the whole sector. And people are, you know, just about all the people working in that sector are struggling. So, um, you know, in that scenario, you don't really want to be paying the sector average. You want to be paying above it in order to retain staff and in order that your staff can actually afford to to live otherwise you're uh, you're running an organization which is effectively you know dependent on um on, on the government to you know for, for their staff to have sustainable incomes and you know you're going to be continuing to have kind of high staff turnover um going forwards as well janet you picked up earlier on on the if part of the problem is is actually people are budgets are so low and we can't pay any more that, that, that people are stealing because they haven't got enough food, then obviously think as a manufacturer, you might have some really obvious opportunities with stock that's going out of date or whatever to think of a scheme that helps people, maybe you know, food baskets within, within your own company or something that helps people to, to get rewarded, finish their shift or something, which is we're going to let these lines go you know, as a priority to employees and build that into our thinking about how we reward and look after people. But we need the facts first, don't we? We need to understand what the pilfering's about and what the goods are and whether that really is a problem for people or not. Um, and even the cost thing, the idea that people are staying, sorry, the heating thing, are people staying after work because of the heating? Let's find out because at the moment, you know, you don't, it sounds odd that people hang out at work after work, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a normal for that, for a Zingers type environment. So trying to understand more about what's going on would be useful. Yeah, and, and that's, I think I, I get Janet's point. I mean, there, there are industries that 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 certainly pay really low wages. That 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 it, it's it's a tough, and and some of those industries are because, you know, the products those those industries sell just the margins are quite tight. Um, either because the end cost the end customer is not willing to pay the the proper cost of the product, and I've certainly seen it in the food industry with supermarkets putting a lot of downward pressure on prices, and that then translate to low wages. Look at agriculture as a good example, where you know, uh, parts of agriculture reliant on, on, on migrant labor to, to pick fruit and veg because they can't attract local uh, staff to do that, and local employees, because they don't, aren't prepared to pay or can't pay um, what is required to get to, 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 to get those workers onto the onto the ground. But 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 I think the challenge here also is an interesting one because the this particular company isn't short of cash. It's sitting on a substantial cash pile, which it's hoping to utilize for this merger and or acquisition. Um, so clearly it's a profitable company. And so this is not a company that is struggling to make ends meet. So there's clearly a a a, a bit of a disconnect between the strategy and its growth and its you know its financial projections and what it's paying staff I mean there's there's got to be a bit of a disconnect here right I mean Peter it's a sort of well recognized principle of uh, strategy uh, business strategy thinking that being the lowest cost producer is not a long-term strategy. Other people will always find ways of imitating you. Um, this is particularly true in this country at the moment with tight labour markets, um, with um, the government's wish to you know, suppress immigration, um, which is contributing to tight labour markets. So I think this company needs to 
think very hard about his business model um, and to see what things it can change to allow better pay at the bottom. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to disagree with Janet about the redistribution point. I just, in most companies, that never works. There isn't enough to redistribute to make significant um, uh, increases uh, possible um, at, at sort of shop floor level. Um, but I do agree um, that they need to think about um, the, the whole kind of structure and the whole model to see what can be done to, 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 to deal with this situation for the low paid. I mean, one of the observations here is that, 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 that clearly a strategy to grow through mergers could actually be a useful move in that if you increase the economies of scale and therefore you're able to reduce the cost of production, there should be more money available to pay staff a higher wage, isn't that? Or am I being overly simplistic, Sandy? No, I mean, uh, um, uh, again, that's kind of uh, part of... A typical business strategy sort of thinking. Um, it has implications. Um, economies of scale are reached by um, maybe reducing the number of people in work in some parts, and you know, and the unions may have strong feelings about that. So there, there are some definitely some difficult trade-offs knocking around here. Um, that, you know, there's clearly something going on. There's some basic economics here. If this company is losing people because they can earn more elsewhere in similar jobs, then there's something not, you know, not quite right in their pay policy. But I do think there is a, a, a discussion that the board needs to have about its ethical position on pay. Um, and uh, this, the concept of uh, of sufficiency, sufficientarianism, the idea that actually there's a kind of ethical obligation that society has to make sure that everybody, everybody has the right to lead a, a dignified life. Um, and I don't think anybody would seriously argue with that principle. And companies have to decide whether they want to um, take responsibility for that principle or or kind of leave it to the government to uh, uh, to deal with, and and I think um, many companies, if they actually sit down and think about this, will feel that that should be part of their responsibility as well. There's also a thought here about the value chain that Zingers is sitting in, and it's all very well to say, okay, let's try and sort of capture more profit and more and higher wage rate here. But you've got to also be thoughtful, at least as a society point of view, about well, what does that mean for? Does that mean that therefore the distributor or the you know the margins are squeezed somewhere else, such that you have precarious work or illegal work or people, you know? And you made the point about agriculture earlier, Peter. So you've got to think about it as, as from a society point of view about the whole value chain. A absolutely right. I mean, you know, responsible companies these days don't just look at the boundaries of their organisation. They look at what's happening in their supply chain too, and they take some responsibility for making sure that everybody, all workers in the supply chain are being treated properly. And a final question for, for, for Leo. I mean, Sandy, you mentioned, uh, you know, responsible business practices and we talked about ethical employers. And, and, and Leo, you know, in your work uh, with companies about making them more responsible, what are the other things companies need to be thinking about besides paying proper living wages and thinking about their supply chains, what, what other things, especially with a view also of, of the pilfering and some other things happening here, what else should this, com this company be thinking about in terms of being a responsible 
company a responsible employer? It's a huge topic and it gets more and more complex, but obviously most companies like Zingers, you would hope would be moving towards trying to codify a set of values and behaviours they want to see, which we hope would build into their cultural story. And that would then look at all aspects of responsible behaviour, wouldn't it? It would, be, it would probably start off with the how do we treat our employees and, and back to Sandy's point about dignity of, of people and, and wage and, and fair treatment of, of employees. But it also it might think about uh, data privacy and it might think about environmental protection and it might think about uh, fraud and it might think about its customer proposition and treating customers fairly you know in the and and all the way around all its stakeholders as well as as well as its shareholders and trying to make sure that they they benefit fairly and reasonably out of this out of its growth strategy so what the company should be doing is obviously thinking about all those different stakeholder groups and trying to codify behavior in some sort of code of conduct um, and turning that that should be key to its cultural success. But not in a top-down way, you know, in an iterative way, discuss it with the union, discuss it with the workforce, discuss it with the, its stakeholders. I think that, you know, that's how you need to bring about change. And on that note, I'd like to finish here. Thank you again very much for your thoughts on this. And thank you to our panelists, Sandy, Janet and Leo. You're very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. So I'm Peter Van Veen. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't heard it already, please do listen to our other podcasts on board Dilemmas, which focused on culture issues in a growing software firm.